You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Recently, as we've been going through Acts, we've seen the apostles being bold in preaching Jesus uh, within the temple courts on Solomon's porch. And we've seen them arrested uh, three different times for preaching the name of Jesus. One time they were arrested and they were severely threatened that they no longer speak the name of Jesus. And John, probably it was, said, you know, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey you or him, you decide. And, uh, you know, he says, but we cannot but speak the things which we've seen or heard. And they got a slap on the wrist. They were severely threatened. And, uh, and then they went back out again and began preaching and they were arrested They were kept overnight, and at night an angel came and opened the prison doors and led them out sneakily, out past the guards, back out to the court so that they could preach all the words of this life, the angel said. So when the morning came and they were found preaching again, they were arrested again last week, we read, and uh, the, the council was wondering what to do with these you know, crazy Christians. And so uh, they were determining what to do when a a wise man, a respected man of the council named Gamaliel stood up and said, you know what? You know, just don't worry about it. If it's a, if it's a work of man, it's just going to fizzle out, you know, but if it's a work of God, we can't stand against it unless we're standing against God and uh, not the best principle for everything in life to see if something's true, but certainly worked for Christianity because uh, here it is today. It hasn't just fizzled out. And uh, so it says that they not only severely threatened them at the end of chapter five, but they scourged them or they skinned them with the whip. And as you just hop back to chapter five, verse 40, it says they agreed with them and they called the apostles and beaten them or skinned them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council. And here's the gem rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So let's begin at the beginning of chapter six in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying in what days, what were the days? What was the context that the disciples were multiplying in the days of suffering and persecution for the name of Jesus in the name in the, in the days of scourging and being counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In the days of verse 42, daily being in the temple, in every house, not ceasing the teaching of the word of God and Jesus as Christ. It was when those things were happening, which is nothing but Acts chapter 2 verse 42 in action, that the number of the disciples was multiplying. And that's something you read about regularly in the book of Acts, that number multiplying. The early church was going through phenomenal growth. And today we're going to read that phenomenal growth brings phenomenal growing pains. But you got to love the simple mathematics in the book of Acts. Anyone here like math? Very few. That does not surprise me at all. 
A few of us gave a girl a ride home from our church last night and, you know, she's wanting to be a pharmacist or kind of go in that direction. And she's just like, I just love math. I'm really good at it, you know. And I was like, I cannot relate, you know. I don't know what you're talking about. But you got to love the math in the book of Acts because in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. In Acts chapter 5, we read that the Lord increased the number, the multitude of both men and women. And then today we read of multiplication, that the Lord multiplied the believers, the disciples. But before the multiplication came, another math factor came in. And in chapter 5, the beginning of the chapter, we read of subtraction. Who and what did the Lord subtract? The Lord subtracted Ananias and Sapphira and made them example of how much he hates hypocrisy within the church, how much he hates the wearing of the mask by his people, and how much he desires that every man, woman, and child be sincere. Not putting on a front, not trying to make people think you're something that you're not, but that we would be real with each other and real with God. Man, if you're overjoyed, be overjoyed. If you're discouraged, be discouraged and let us know so we can pray and encourage you. Man, if you're depressed or going through a hard season, don't put on the big smiley face mask because then we'll never be able to pray and encourage and know what's going on on your heart and in your life. You know, if you're struggling with sin, don't act like you're all righteous and pompous and self-righteous, but man, just confess your sins with one another, as James tells us, that you can be healed. And so before the Lord brings about multiplication within the church, within Calvary Chapel of Crook County, which within uh, you know, uh, the whole world, the church, the universal church, there's got to be a subtraction of hypocrisy, a subtraction of sin. We're to sweep the leaven out. You know, the pictures given to us in uh, 1 Corinthians, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump and makes it sourdough. Someone, I was talking to someone today, they work for, uh, shoot, dad's place, you know. She's like, our yeast that we use for our sourdough is 25 years old. I did not know that was possible. But we got to get that 25-year-old sin out of our camp so that we can have a pure lump. You guys are like, I, you lost me there. Lumps, pancakes, I don't know what's going on, you know. Me neither. Let's just forget that, okay. But we want to notice here, when was the church multiplying? Was it when it was easy for the church? People with bonnets and baskets skipping through fields of flowers, just like, I'm going to church, you know? Was that what it was like? You know? Or was it when it was difficult? When you were wondering if you were going to live to see the next day? When you had bandages on your backs from the scourging? From the, from the uh, whippings and the beatings? You had bruises, you know, the sad thing is, is that most of us as the church today would choose comfort and safety, comfort and safety over difficulties. You know, if we divide, divided the room into two groups, right? You know, come on this side if you want comfort and safety and come on this side if you want to suffer for Jesus. Would there be enough room on this half of the, you know, uh, most of us would be over there. I might even be over there. Comfort and safety. All right. Is that what the Lord has called us to? Does he say, hey, hey, I'm just going to, I want to warn you guys just in case you might, someone might not like that you're talking about me, you know, hey, just, no. what does he say? Hey, you're not above me. 
They hated me, they're going to hate you. They killed me, they're going to kill you. A disciple is not above his master. Get ready for it. Persecution is coming. It's something that every Christian uh, can expect. And you know what the comforting thing is? God is sovereign and he's got a plan and he will always do what is right. And in a Christian's life, suffering is just a part of him doing what is right. Suffering is just a part of him working out his sovereign plan. And that's a very encouraging thing. You know, many of you might be thinking, if God is a God of love, then why did he let this happen to me? Or if God is a God of love, why did he let this happen to this part of the world? Or if God cares about me, then why am I in this place right now? But what I encourage you to do is to take a step back and ask the Lord to give you the right perspective. Last week, I passed my boating in Oregon exam, so you can all rest easily tonight. But one of the things is if you're driving down the river and you don't really know, am I in the middle of the river? Am I in the right channel? There's lanes in the river. There's these two different signs at different places. And if you're in the right spot, they'll be lined up in your view. But if you're in the wrong spot, you know, they'll be one way or the other. And so many of us, we're in the wrong spot with the Lord. We're not in fellowship. We don't spend any time with him. Some of us are in sin and rebellious sin, and we don't care what Jesus thinks. Your perspective is all off. You have no clue what's going on in your life. But when you spend time with Jesus and you get into the word and you look at his grand scheme of things from Genesis to Revelation, his plan of redemption for humankind, his plan of setting you apart as a Christian from the rest of this world and getting you out of your sin to be more like him, it all makes sense. There's comfort in that. There's peace in that. There's joy in the midst of trial. There's joy in the midst of persecution. But you've got to have the right perspective. I encourage you to read Psalm chapter 72 because the psalm is just like, why are good things happening to all those bad people out there? And it seems like I'm getting ripped off. And he says, but then I came into the courts of the Lord. And it's then that I was given perspective. And I saw things just as God saw them. And so as you step back and you look at God's sovereignty and God's plan and God's love for you and his plan of redemption for you throughout all of history, then you begin to realize it's because God loves you that he's letting you go through the persecution. Or it's because God loves you that he's letting you suffer. And right now, maybe you need to just ask the Lord, Lord, I don't get it. Help me to understand that. It's because God loves you and because he loves the rest of the world that he allows us to suffer. And James and Peter, they both give us this great principle that we're to rejoice or to count it all joy when we fall into various trials because the testing of our faith produces patience. You know, we're refined like gold when it's brought right out of the mountain. It's not put right onto the, se- the shelves to sail, but rather it's put into the refiner's fire. They crank the heat up and they melt that gold and they turn it up higher and higher and higher. And that gold is just red hot and all of the impurities come to the top and it's taken with a ladle and those uh, impurities are taken off and skimmed off the top. Because he loves us, he lets us go through hard things. Many of you would never be here today calling on the name of the Lord, falling down on your knees before Jesus if you hadn't been going through a trial that would bring you to that place 
in the first place. You know, we need to get rid of the mentality of Christians that, you know, it's God's economy that life must not be going right if I'm suffering. Because that's life. And that's Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. We're called to suffer. And not only to suffer, but to even die for the name of Jesus. To count our lives as nothing. To count our possessions as nothing. It's chaff. It's garbage. It's a dung heap, as Paul puts it in Philippians. Compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus. We can count it all as loss. And so the church in Acts chapter 6 is just experiencing this multiplication, this population explosion in the midst of the suffering. And I think one reason that is, is because when you see someone suffering, you see what they're really like in their heart. You see what they're really like in their heart. And when a Christian suffers, and they have that right perspective because they've spent time with Jesus, They're not grumbling and complaining and, oh man, I just got this ingrown toenail or this impacted wisdom tooth or, man, I just wrecked my car and cursed the world and curse everybody in it, you know? And they just have that attitude. There's something wrong with that guy. I don't want what that guy's got. But if a Christian gets cancer or loses a spouse or a parent or, you know, a job or has a ailment or wrecks their car and they're still able to say blessed be the name of the lord he gives and he takes away shouldn't i take the good with the bad he's awesome he's sovereign who knows if he's just wanting to glorify himself in the midst of my trial who knows if he's wanting to bring somebody to christ that's also going through hodgkin's disease or leukemia and no one around him knows jesus but now i've got leukemia and i'm getting chemotherapy right next to them and i'm telling them about jesus or like paul in philippians when he's in chains and in jail in chapter four is all about i'm full of joy who's full of joy when they're in jail or they're going through trials or they're beaten you know Who rejoices that they're worthy to suffer shame with Christ? Who rejoices in trial? Man, only people that are, that know Jesus and realize, hey, this is just the way it is. I rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, uh, rejoice. You know, C.S. Lewis says that suffering is God's megaphone to a dying world. You know, if everything was great, no one would need a Jesus. But everyone is sick. Everyone's dying. Sin has ravaged the world, the planet, everything in it. And we're able to use the suffering to point people to the one who came to aid those who suffer. Who came to take away the sin of those whose sins just destroyed their life. Came to bring peace to those who are troubled. Came to set free those that are in bondage. All of that suffering is just a loud megaphone to say, Jesus is the answer. Turn to him. There's no other way, no other program, no other philosophy, no other faith, no other religion, but in the name of Jesus and him alone and no other name under heaven must a man be saved. He's the answer. And so when we're in the midst of these difficulties and suffering and taking a stand for Christ, the world takes notice. Man, look for those opportunities. 
You know, I don't, I don't think it's going to be long before this world begins, or this nation begins to see persecution on a grand scale against Christians. You know, already there's legislation trying to be passed that, you know, if a pastor speaks out against homosexuality, he'll be prisoned or punished or fined. Does that mean that I'm going to stop teaching purity and holiness and God's design for marriage and that God loves the gays but hates the gay lifestyle? Absolutely not. I'm preaching the word of God. And if I go to jail, you know what I'm thinking? God's got a bigger plan. He wants to add to the church. He wants to multiply to the church. Praise God for the suffering. Man, some of you might join me in there and we can sing hymns in the jail together and watch angels let us out and all that cool stuff. But (laughs) notice that what was multiplying? Who was multiplying? Acts chapter six, verse one. Who was multiplying? Disciples were multiplying. Disciples were we're increasing in number. You know, the early church wasn't interested in making converts, one-time converts, you know, someone that would just raise their hand at a Sunday Bible study or at an outreach or at a summer camp or whatever it might be. But the world is looking, the churches, our purpose is to make disciples, people that count the cost for Jesus, people that realize that, you know what, it's all or nothing. Jesus doesn't like lukewarmness. He vomits out those that are lukewarm. He doesn't want you, you know, straddling the fence or one foot in the world and one foot for him. He wants all or he wants nothing. It can't be uh, both. There can't be a lukewarmness. But he wants disciples. Someone that says, Jesus, I want to be a learner of yours. I want to be a follower of yours. And I call you Lord. I call you master because you're just that. You know, the, the convert, the one-time convert, and when I say this, I mean someone that just got emotional one day and had a tear roll down their cheek and said, you know what, everyone around here is saying, I love Jesus, so I'm going to say I love Jesus. When really in your heart, and only the Lord knows this, you don't love Jesus. You love yourself. You love the emotion of the moment. You love the thought of wearing a cool cross around your neck or something like that, but you don't love Jesus. You won't follow him. You won't be obedient to him. You won't let him be your Lord and your master. Those one-time converts, quick emotional reactions, sad thing is, is they're going to go to hell. And if that's you, you're going to go to hell. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Didn't we prophesy in your name and, you know, heal people in your name and do all this in your name? The Lord's like, I never knew you. You never obeyed my word. And that's what matters. Knowing the Lord on a personal level, not just being emotional and responding in an emotional moment. The Lord doesn't want one quick raise of the hand. He wants disciples. And a disciple is someone that says, Lord, the rest of my life is yours. If it means I die tomorrow for you, it's yours. You know, if it means I'm blasphemed in my home, that's okay. It's for you, Lord. I count the cost. I have nothing left of me. It's all yours. You are my master. That's really what a Lord is. You know, we could make tons of just followers 
of ourself or of our church. You know, we could not teach long Bible studies and not open up our Bibles and not talk about sin or the cross or how you need to repent of your sin and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. You know, we could just show clips from the OC or Will and Grace and sing songs from the latest episode of whatever and just be a good club or something like that. That's easy to do. There's tons of mega churches out there. Uh, that that's, if that's what you want, you can go there. But we're not interested in that. We're not interested in just followers. We're interested in disciples. People that with reckless abandon follow hard after the Jesus of the Bible and love him and get rid of sin in their lives because they love him and serve each other because they love Jesus. And are active and involved in the church because they love Jesus. That's what we're after. Disciples. And may the Lord multiply disciples uh, here in Prineville. In our church even. An explosion, an explosion of disciples is a work of God. And here we see uh, just this incredible work happening. Multiple, you know, the multiplication tables are just going ching, 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 ching as these disciples are being added. And there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. You know, it is great here in Acts chapter 6 that these widows are being served. You know, James chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion before God, you know, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Do you love the widows? Do you serve the widows? Do you love the orphans? Man, I heard a story about a, a young man in this community that, uh, in a way, an orphan, just abandoned by his, his mom. And he goes, Lord, what do, what do we do? We want to love this kid. We want to be there for this kid. We want to show him the, the love of Christ. And as you look at the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord has a passion and a heart for the widow. You do not defraud the widow. You do not take advantage of the widow. He's the protector of the widow. He's the protector of the orphan. He loves the orphan. He loves those that are hurting and in need. And he set up the concept of the gleaning fields. And man, I'm just so blessed that and privileged to be a part of, you know, the soup kitchen as we just love on just the hurting people in this community. You know, we want to be modeled after the scripture. We want to ornament the gospel with love, with a hot meal. And so as this incredible stuff is going on and the, these widows are being served, uh, we see, you know, growing pains happen. This phenomenal growth produces these growing pains. And man, I know something about growing pains. I'm 6'4". I remember those nights, you know, where something is going on in my leg and I don't know what. You know, my son is just sprouting right now as a three-year-old, you know. And he's, he'll scream in the middle of the night and I'll run upstairs and he's, my leg. And I'm like looking at it. There's nothing wrong with your leg. My leg, you know. I'm like, oh gosh, you know. Lord, I don't know. You know, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember those nights screaming into my pillow, you know? And uh, that's what the church was going through. And any church that is growing grows th goes through uh, these growing pains. Now, why? Because growth involves people. Growth involves people, you know? No one's perfect. If you're looking for the perfect church, don't go to it. You'll ruin it. Because you're not perfect. The perfect church doesn't have anybody in it. You know, it's been said in Proverbs that, you know, where there are no oxen, 
The stalls are clean. If you're a farmer, use your picture in your brain to figure what what that means, you know. Uh, Yeah, where there's no people, there's no problems. But ministry is all about, man, bringing Jesus into the lives of people so that he can heal their hearts and heal their lives and their attitudes. And he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And here we have just this you know, growth pain happening as the Hellenists start complaining that they've been neglected, you know, because the Hebrews got all the food. And there's that word, you know, that word we did a little word study on a couple weeks ago, complain. A complaint arose or a murmuring. In the Greek, it's the word gonguzmos. And it speaks of a grumbling and a deep-seated murmuring in the heart or a heart murmur, if you will. And it's it's actually an onomatopoeia. I don't know if you know what an onomatopoeia is, but you know it's a word that sounds like whatever it's denoting, such as bam, or bang, or slam, or swoosh. You know, and here we have murmur. Murmurs onomatopoeia. Grumble, grumble, murmur, murmur, grumble, grumble, murmur, murmur, grumble, 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 murmur, 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 grumble, grumble. You know, oh, he did that, she did that, he said this, we did this, we're doing that, we're going over here. You know, and it's just it's just constant. It can be constant in a Christian's life. And you know, the 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 Lord says that you know He hates a murmurer. He hates the grumbler. It's a sin to avoid. You know, these Hellenists were these Jews that had a Greek influence. Ever since Alexander the Great came in with the Grecians, you know, a few hundred years earlier, this culture was still there, a language and a culture. And it spread into the Jewish communities. And so here you have two different cultures being served at the same soup kitchen, the same oasis. And the Hellenists felt like they were neglected. And perhaps they were. It doesn't say that they weren't. Maybe they were being neglected. Have you ever felt like that? That the church has neglected you? You didn't get the phone call. You didn't get the meals on wheels. You know, you didn't get the encouragement or, you know, you haven't been asked to be on the worship team yet or to teach a Bible study on a Sunday morning or whatever. You just feel some way or another, you feel neglected. That's a very real thing that I have felt before. But, you know, there's a few different ways that we can go at that neglect. We can murmur, grumble, grumble, and complain, complain, and have this deep, heartfelt uh, complaint against whoever it might be. But that would go against Philippians when we're told to do all things without complaining and disputing or grumbling and complaining. You know, Proverbs tells us six things the Lord hates. Number one is a haughty or a proud spirit. And the sixth thing, I'm just going to jump to six if you don't mind, is a heart that stirs up dissension among brothers. I'll just tell you right now, if you're one of those that stirs up dissension, you need to repent. The Lord hates that. And there's things that I do that the Lord hates that he shows me and I need to repent. But if that's you, stop doing that today. I was reading, I am reading a a book right now called The Pacific. It's about the war in Pacific, World War II. Read it kind of as I'm trying to fall asleep at night. And uh, just last night, I was reading about when the Marines went on to Cape Gloucester uh, in New Guinea. And, uh, you know, they went in, it's raining, it's muddy, sloppy, they can barely walk. 
And uh, they found that the Japanese had flown over and dropped all of these leaflets or propaganda to try and ruin the, the people's heart about their country or their allies or their fellow man working beside them, you know, their fellow warrior. But as they looked at the leaflet, it was a very pornographic leaflet. It was just this horrible leaflet that actually was meant to slander the Americans against the Australians. And the Japanese had actually thought that the Australians had taken uh, Cape Gloucester. And so they dumped all these leaflets that were about the Americans and the Americans ended up getting them. And the Americans read them and they're like, hey, this is about us. You know, we don't do this or maybe we do. I don't know. But, you know, uh, it was ineffective. Well, the point of telling you that is, who is it that drops this propaganda into our life? Who is it that starts, and I love that the book I was reading used the language, sow seeds of dissension amongst the allies. That's how the book put it. Who is it that comes into the church and sows seed of dissension amongst us? Might be against the pastor or the elders or the worship team. Might be against, you know, different groups or cultures that we have in Prineville. But who is it? It's the enemy. It's the enemy that does that, and the Lord hates it. And may the Lord make us so quick, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that the moment we start sowing seeds of gossip or dissension or slander, we just stop where we're at and just in humility say, whoa, I don't know why I started talking about that person that way. Or that, you know, and, and as my pastor Rob always said, it's so much easier to be critical than it is to pray. How about the next time you find your heart being critical or complaining, just stop and pray about the situation and pray for the people and pray for the right perspective in the situation. And then after you've spent time praying, come and talk to the person one-on-one -on -one about the issue that you're having, you know, and, and do that instead and pray. But, uh, you know, instead of being critical, uh, pray in that direction. And uh, I can't remember the direction I was going with that. But, um, oh, yeah. So, you know, if you're in the midst of being critical, just stop yourself right then and there. And, you know, I actually kind of shared in a similar fashion a few weeks ago this about this. And uh, Stuart and I were driving. And as we're driving, I just started, hey, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so started to do to me or something. And it was kind of like digging them to Stuart. And then I heard my message in my head from that Sunday, just two days before. And I just stopped with Stuart. And I said, Stuart, I'm sorry. I just have to shut up. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm hearing my own message. Am I going to listen to myself? Am I going to practice what I preach? I just got to be quiet. And may the Lord just work that in us again. You know, James chapter 1 verse 26 says that if any man of us thinks that we're religious or spiritual, but we don't tame our tongue, then that man's religion is useless. If you're a gossiper or a slanderer or even filthy mouth, maybe, or, uh, you know, a uh, sower of dissension, you're not living the life of a Christian. And so rather than murmuring, pray. If you see a problem or a need that needs to be done, instead of murmuring, pray. And then let me submit this to you. Perhaps the Lord has made you aware of it so that you can fix the problem. So that you can help out and fill that need or fill that void. Man, the children's ministry around here is horrible. There's only like two people working back there. I hate Calvary Chapel, blah, blah, blah. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pray and pray about helping us back there. There's a thought, you know, pray or whatever it might be. 
man, the bathrooms, there's always toilet paper on the floor. There's always something on the mirror. Hey, how about you let that be your ministry of grabbing the Windex and just, you know, hey, just, I'm here, just clean the mirrors real quick. That's something the Lord's put on my heart to do. Man, ask the Lord for the right perspective rather than a complaining. So these Grecian Jews began complaining against the Hebrew-speaking uh, Jewish Jews, you know, the, the, uh, the Aramaic-speaking, uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews, that they were being neglected, that there was favoritism going on. And in verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, you've got to read uh, this with the right tone. Because what they're not saying is that serving tables or doing practical ministry is any less in value than teaching the Bible or leading a prayer meeting. It's not either or. It's not one is glorious and glamorous and, and the other is like, well, let's get the dumb people to do that one. You know, uh, That is not what they're saying. They're saying there's two different needs in the church. One of them is a spiritual need because we are spiritual beings. And, and, and that includes ministering the word of God and prayer and dealing with the spiritual realm and the spirit of man. And the other need in the church are the physical needs and some of the practical needs. You know, these physical people have bodily needs. They need chairs. You know, they need the bathrooms clean. There's tables that need to be set up. There's coffee that needs to be made. There's windows that need to be shined so those physical bodies can look out of them. There's a facility to take care of. And it's not one or the other or one over the other. It's both. If one is neglected, then both of them falter. If the other is neglected, then the other one falters. And what Peter or, you know, whoever happened to be saying this then, it seems like all of them concurred that, man, someone's got to rise up, that their gifting and all of their passions and energies can go towards tending to the physical needs of the sheep so that we can put all of our energies and giftings and everything we are into tending to the spiritual uh, needs of, of these sheep as well. And so there's just a word of wisdom that comes from the apostles that, you know what, we can't do both. We can't minister to everybody in this way. I've become so busy in making sure the tablecloth is set up right on this table that I didn't even study for Sunday morning Bible study. Man, this week, that was a struggle for me because I knew the Antone barbecue was coming up. So I was just studying early and studying beforehand. And last night I got to drive around the brand new ATV that showed up on the ranch and haul people around. And I was like, I'm going to start serving tables and forget to study the Bible. You know, no, I'm just kidding. Don't worry, studying happened. You're like, I doubt it. Um, but you know, the danger of neglecting to study the word or to neglect prayer in a pastor's life is a very real danger and a great danger. Huge danger. You know, the, there's so much business that wives are neglected. Times of just prayer and waiting on the Lord and hearing, getting vision from the Lord. Those times are neglected. You know, one Gallup poll said as it took everybody's opinions on what the pastor's jobs were in the church and the community, it came out to that a pastor's job uh, was to, to consume 160 hours of his week. 
well, he needs to do this and he needs to be here and he needs to be here for me. And sometimes I need to call him in the middle of the night and then he needs to do this and this and this and this. He's got to do my wedding and he's got to do my friend's wedding. He's got to do my pre-marriage counseling. And then after I get married and I'm angry at my wife, he's got to do my after-marriage counseling. And he's got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. One man, are you serious? That's not at all what we see in the scriptures. We see that all changes in Acts chapter 6. That other people arise that are able to take care of the practical needs. And then another group of people come that can focus on uh, the spiritual needs as well. Now, this doesn't mean that a pastor is completely above uh, practical tasks. But rather, First Peter chapter 5 tells us that, you know, a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop, you know, uh, those words are used interchangeably in Acts chapter 20, uh, they're to... Uh, Tend to the needs of the flock. They're to shepherd the flock that is among them, serving as overseers, not by compulsion or dishonest gain, but eagerly and willingly. And it says, not as being lords over the flock, serve me, I'm the senior pastor at this church, bow down, kiss my toes, and bring me something cool and refreshing in a goblet, you know. Uh, you know, that's not what the pastor's to do. But it says, but as being examples to them. Man, I want to be an example of a servant. You know, I'm never going to ask you guys to do something that I won't do with you. I'm not going to neglect the word, but man, I'll join arms with you. I'm not going to save the dirty, nasty tasks for the deacon ministry, you know, or whatever. Uh, but man, I want to be there. I want to serve and lead by example. And then when I feel that that time has reached its point, I'm going to go over. I'm going to start studying the word again. I'm going to go back to prayer and I'm going to leave that practical task to be done uh, by others. And so it's true, you know, that the pastor needs to be the example of a servant, but the body needs to rise up to the occasion. And that's you. You're the body and rising up to the occasion to take this weight off of the pastor's and the elder's shoulders. Rise uh, to the occasion. You know, so often the church is like a sporting event. You know, there's a few people down in the middle that are running around and everyone's cheering or booing or one or the other or both sometimes. And, and there's other people that sometimes want to get involved. Oh, I wish I could play in there. And then there's other people that are like, ah, oh, let them play, you know. And man, where are you in the sporting event? Are you, in, are you actively involved in playing and helping out? You know, are you wanting to help out? Come let me know. Oh, I want to get in the game, but I don't really know how, you know. Pick me, pick me, let me play you know, or are you just, you know, yelling at the ref in the back, you know, and throwing cans, you know, at the players? You know, where are you at on that scale? But the pastor, you know, he can't be the only one. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says that the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that the whole body can be matured and not tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Isn't that interesting that as you guys raise up to begin to do the work of the ministry, then the church becomes more complete and more complete and more complete. But if it's left just on the pastor's or the elder's shoulders, the church isn't going to be complete. There's going to be needs. There's going to be lackings and there's going to rise complainings. It's going to falter. It's going to falter. So pray about how you can get involved into this. And, uh, you know, we see here just some wisdom here as uh, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And these men are just the beginning. It's the first time we see of this office in the New Testament called a deacon. 
or diakonos in the Greek, or it speaks of a servant, someone that serves the church and serves the body of Christ, someone that comes alongside the pastor to take the weight of practical ministry off of his shoulders. You know, uh, it's just incredible to see next week, we'll see Stephen, who's a deacon, just Uh, he'd been faithful in being a servant and the Lord made him an evangelist and a man that worked signs and wonders as he, you know, eventually a martyr as he was faithful to be a servant first of all. But seek out these seven men and have these qualities. And what were these qualities? Number one, of good reputation. You know, they're going to be in front of people. They're going to be occupying an office and, uh, you know, they, they need to be representing Jesus well, full of the Holy Spirit or controlled by the Holy Spirit, not operating in their own power, but his power, and then full of wisdom. So many practical issues, administrative and, you know, building wise, and all of this stuff that requires just a wise person. And someone even that has even possibly 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of wisdom. In their life. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. There we see the uh, qualifications for a deacon or a servant. Remember, we're speaking of servants here. It says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not given to much wine not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, and now here we could be speaking of deacons' wives, or the Greek also just refers to women. And and we see in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, that there was a woman deaconess named Phoebe. And so an awesome place for women in the church to help out and to serve. But women must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who've served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we see that, you know, these men that we're going to read their names in just a second, seven guys fulfilled these characteristics before they were ever given any position or office or special title, you know, food handlers permit there at the Oasis Soup Kitchen of the year one. Um, You know, they already had set the examples in their homes and in their communities and within the fellowship. They were already deaconing. These people just saw it and said, why not these guys? Now, if I was going to ask you to pick for me seven men or seven women uh, to do a faithful ministry here at the church, uh, you know, how would you go about picking that person? Well, he's an attractive man. Let's pick him, you know. Oh, she's got a great voice or, you know, outward characteristics. Is that how you would pick somebody, you know? Or would you have an eye for that guy or have an eye for that girl that's already serving Jesus in the capacity that's needed without a title? They're serving in the shadows. 
You know, they're coming in in the middle of the week and they're cleaning the church, they're cleaning the toilets, they're doing the job nobody else wants to do. They're faithful in the little things, not getting any accolades or pats on the back. And you'd say to me, Rory, I picked that guy. Who is that guy? You know, in a small church, we all know everybody, but you know, well, I don't know his name, but he's here all the time, you know, getting the windows clean or making the chairs are straight, making sure those little Kleenex boxes are every other chair and perfectly lined up down the road. You know, that guy or that girl, man, they're faithful. They're humble. They don't need the pats on the back. And you know what? I'm sensing the Lord is ready to move them onto something greater, something else. As we're told about stewardship by Jesus, that if you're faithful in the little things, he'll make you ruler over many. I also encourage you, rather than looking for that title or looking for a ministry to be over, just minister. Just do it. Just be there. Just begin these things. I have a dear friend, love him a lot. But before I was the high school pastor, uh, you know, he was you know, kind of a candidate to be the high school pastor. And, uh, you know, he never, you know, after that point, never came to church, was never at the prayer meeting, was never serving. And by God's grace, they called me and said, Rory, you want, you know, pray about being the high school pastor. I became the high school pastor. And then later on, this friend was so bitter uh, because, well, he didn't, he's not the high school pastor. And my pastor, Rob, just said to me, you know what? He disappeared. I don't know if he was waiting on his couch for a phone call to become a pastor or what, but there was, we were a mobile church meeting in a school, not their packing chairs, not their cleaning bathrooms, not their helping in the children's ministry, not their, uh, at the prayer meeting. And so it's ridiculous to think that I'm going to spot you out of the church and just go lay a hand on you and appoint you as a leader, a shepherd of this church to whom you're going to give account before God. And I'm going to give account for laying hands on you. If I've never seen you faithful in any capacity within the church. But if you are faithful in the little areas and you have a heart to be a deacon or a bishop or on the worship team, man, be faithful in the little things. And just watch the Lord naturally make you ruler over many. You know, another thing about a servant is they don't need to be asked. They don't need to be asked, but they see a need and they jump on it. They see a full garbage can and they take it out. They see a table that needs to be moved and they move it. You know, they jump on it. You know, I've always just had this heart in me and it's by God's grace that if I see something trash on the ground or something that needs to be done, I jump on it because I always just, my heart says, I don't want someone I love to have to do that. Plugged up toilet, I'll do it. I don't want, I love you. I don't want you to have to see that stuff, you know, uh, trash on the ground, gooey stuff, whatever, man, I love you. I don't want you to have to do that. What if we all had that heart be spick and span around here, shiny, clean Clorox, tidy, fresh, you know, uh, but man, have that heart, uh, that heart to minister, but don't just look for a ministry to be over or a title. And here we see these seven guys that were these guys. Now, Rory, why is it really that important that they had to be full of the Holy Spirit or full of wisdom? You know, uh, why'd they have to be of good report if they were just going to be bus boys? You know, can't we just go down to McDonald's and say, hey, can you come bust some tables for Why? Why? Because it's for Jesus. Because it's for Jesus. And his name is represented. Now, just because you're bad at something doesn't mean you can't help out. But man, we want to strive for excellence and do everything that we do as unto the Lord. It's been said you can, you can never be 
too small for Christ. You can only be too big. Well, I'm the administrative pastor. I don't change light bulbs. Don't you know that's the deacon's job? Yeah, it's a fast track to being shelved in the ministry. You know, if you think you're too good for something, you know, um, man, may the Lord give us the humble heart of a servant because that's how Jesus led. You know, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I encourage you, be that guy or be that girl that's just a servant. Can't stop you from serving. Can't get you to sit down and take a break at the church barbecue or whatever it is. Man, I was just so blessed this week. Uh, I've been noticing a high school, young high school man in our church that, um, you know, every time there's something that needs to be done, he's there. Every time there's a service opportunity, he's there. The hot sun, he's there. The cold days, he's there. And I just, uh, I was driving with him the other day and I just started talking with him about gifts of the spirit and the Holy Spirit. And we just talking about that for a little bit. And uh, as a couple weeks went by, I was with him at camp and I just said, you know what? I really feel the Lord would have me share with you that he's given you the gift of helps. You read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I just say, I believe you can pray about that, but I think that that's a gift that the Lord has given you. And he didn't say much, but he didn't need to because immediately he went to helping. And I don't think the whole time at camp, I didn't look over and he had three chairs in his hands, hauling chairs over and kids were done eating and he's picking up the plates off their tables and throwing them in the trash can, you know, incredible thing. There's something about a servant. There's something about someone that's not looking out for number one, but's looking out for his fellow sheep. I don't want you to have to do that. I love you too much. That's an incredible thing. Man, if, it's, if it can happen in a high schooler, man, I know it can happen in the adults as well. And I see it in the adults. But man, just let the Lord do that work uh, in you. And verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And you know what, guys? Anything else would be wrong. Anything else would be wrong. This is what you want in a pastor. Someone that loves to pray and prays for you and prays for the church and prays over his sermon and devotes time to studying the word and ministering the word. You know, where the uh, new deacons are now serving the meat on the tables, the pastor serves the meat of the word to the people. And that's what you want in a pastor. You don't want him distracted with other stuff. And so pray for your pastor. This week, we're reading uh, R.A. Torrey's book, chapter 11 is out there, and it's about the need for a general revival. And one of the subjects was the need for a revival in the heart of a pastor or a minister, that they would go back to prayer, that they would go back to studying the word, and that it would be a joy of their life. One of the books that I also recommend that you guys bought them all, so I have to order some more, 50 People Every Christian Should Know. Men and women, giants of the faith that I'm just a little midget writing on the back of them, you know, uh, giants of the faith and every one of them diligently spent tons of time in the word, couldn't get enough of the word, couldn't get enough prayer. Man, these giants that went before us led by example, church history is covered with men that followed the Acts chapter six um, example. You know, preparing a sermon is a lot like preparing a meal. It takes time takes labor. It takes prayer. But these men, uh, they were just incredible servants. And, and going back to you know, one group serving the people, another group serving the people through the word. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. 
saying, please the whole multitude. You know what I believe? I believe right here we see a spiritual gift of wisdom that you read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that gift is a word fitly spoken at the right time that brings a peace to a tough situation. An example, Solomon has the two women come before him and they're fighting over one baby. One woman says it's hers. The other one says it's hers. What did Solomon say? Okay, give me a sword. I'm going to cut this baby in half and you guys can each have a half. And Solomon and the women say, one woman says, no, don't do it. And one woman says, sure, do it. I don't care. And he said, okay, it's yours. You don't want your baby to be killed, obviously. That was just a word that just brought peace. And something these disciples did, just a word from the Holy Spirit, brought a, brought a peace between the Hellenists and the uh, Hebrews, and it pleased the whole multitude. So they chose Stephen. Next week, we're going to study Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy, the Holy Spirit. And Philip, in Acts chapter 8, we'll study Philip. Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These incredible men, men full of the Holy Spirit, born again. You know, I'd ask you today, are you full of the Holy Spirit? Or are you an empty vessel? You know, the moment you uh, receive the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, that gift of grace from Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells you and comes inside of you. Uh, takes away that heart of stone that doesn't listen to God and doesn't care about God's statutes and hard heart to him. And he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh that hears Jesus and loves Jesus and wants to obey Jesus. Have you been born again? Have you been given a new heart? Have you had the Holy Spirit, the person of God dwell inside you? Man, today you can. Today you can. And so, you know, we read of these men that are born again, full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, full of wisdom. Read of a man, Nicholas. Church history tells us that Nicholas started out well, but didn't finish well. And history tells us that this is the Nicholas that uh, began the church of the Nicolaitans we read about in Revelation. You guys remember the church of Nicolaitans? Did Jesus like them? No, he didn't like them. He hated them. Why? Because they ruled over the people. They ruled over the people. You can date him, but you can't date him. You can go on vacation or you can't go on vacation. You can go over here, you can live here, but you can't live here. You know what? Jesus hates it when the shepherds lord over the people. Now, there's biblical things that we will admonish you in, and of course, black and white areas. But then there's somewhere there is that freedom. So hopefully that's not true, but that's what church history says about Nicholas. And they set all these man before, men before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And so they just showed that God's hand were on these men. You know, Timothy is told by Paul not to lay hands on anyone hastily, but to pray. And in Acts chapter 13, before Paul and Silas are sent out on the first missionary journey, what happened? They fasted and prayed before laying hands on them and sending them out. So we're not going to just be appointing elders around here, lickety-split, wham-bam, over here, over there, appointing some deacons and giving people titles all over the place. But man, we pray and we examine and we look at a person's life and are they of good reputation? You know, if you desire that position, come and talk to us about it. We'll pray about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we pray and we fast and we don't lay hands on anybody hastily. It's a principle set before us in the early church. And then in verse 7, we're almost done here. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied 
greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So what was the result of this good management? The word of God spread. What was the result of the apostles able to spend time praying and in the word and serving the word? The word spread. That's what we want our pastors to be doing is spending time in the word so that it can get out into the highways and the byways. And, uh, and then here we have that multiplication again. Disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then, man, this is a gem. You guys, everybody, if, you're, if you tuned in, tune out. You know, listen to this. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Does that mean anything to you guys? Do you know a few months ago, these priests were the ones that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon the head of us and our children. These are the priests that while Jesus was hanging in Golgotha, the veil of the temple ripped from the top to the bottom and they were witnesses of that. And after a few months have gone by, the Holy Spirit has spoken forth the word of salvation in such power through the lips of the apostles that even those that said crucify him were getting saved. You guys know what this means? This means that that individual in your family or at your job site that seems impossible to save, that seems like they're going to kill you anytime you mention the name of Jesus, that every time you talk about the Lord, they... lash out at you that relative that parent it means there is hope for them and hebrew tells us that the lord is able to save even to the uttermost or as one evangelist put it even to the guttermost those whose lives are just floating in the cesspool and filth of their sin god is able to save those with the hardest hearts the Sauls of tarsus that we'll read about in a few weeks The murderers of Christians are able to be saved. So you keep praying for them that the Holy Spirit would come and change their lives and change their hearts. What an encouraging thing. Let's pray. And uh, as Stuart's coming up, just lead us in a closer song. You know, just in an attitude of prayer, you can have your head bowed, your eyes closed. You know, it said that those priests were obedient to the faith. I just want to ask you today, are you obedient to the faith? You know, 1 Thessalonians tells us that Jesus is coming, and during the second coming, he's going to execute judgment and wrath upon those who are disobeying the gospel. Are you obeying the gospel today, or are you disobeying the gospel? You know, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? But don't do the things that I say. I'm not your Lord. You, you're, you are your own Lord. Your boyfriend is your Lord. Your girlfriend is your Lord. Your sin or your hobby is your Lord. I'm not your Lord. And maybe today you just say, I have not been obedient and I cannot say I'm obedient to Jesus. Just confess that to him right now and say, Lord, I see what you see. I see a rebellious heart of wickedness. Lord, I see a a heart that's been cursing you so that I can stay in my sin. But Lord, I don't want to stay at war with you because I know I'm going to lose. Lord, I want to be broken before you. Lord, help me not to be disobedient to your word, but bring about obedience in me.
Lord, I pray you would work that in the hearts of the people of this church today, that we would just love to obey you. It would be the most natural thing to just do what is right in your sight, not because we have to, but because we get to and because we love you, Lord. And just as we close in song, man, if that's you today, I just encourage you to stand as we close in song and just respond to the Lord and say, Lord, make me like the priests, obedient to your word. Maybe today you just, you don't want to be a spectator on the outskirts, but you want to be involved in actively serving Jesus and using your gifts to minister within the church. Maybe today as we sing, you would stand and just say, Lord, I've been selfish with my time and my resources and I see that you have so much more. I I see that there's a, a burden on Rory and the elders and stuff that practically needs to be done and Lord, use me to serve. Maybe you even have a heart to be an elder. And Paul tells Timothy that if you have a desire to be an elder, you have a, that's a good desire. May I just share that with the Lord. I think the Lord would just ask you today, are you elding right now? Are you loving on the people right now? Do you have to have the title of elder or are you serving and speaking and loving on people and encouraging people and confronting people in their sin and teaching the word to people? And, or do you have to have the title? But man, maybe just today you're just noticing, Lord, I I don't want to just sit in the bleachers. I want to be used by you. Maybe you're just here today and you're an empty vessel. You've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have a heart of stone that Jesus wants to take and replace with a soft, tender heart towards him. And today you would look at him on the cross and realize the love that he has for you, that he shed all of his blood and his body on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. But he didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the grave victorious and now sits at the right hand of the father, ruling in victory. And he's Lord over the church. And he'll be Lord over you today. If you'll repent of your sins and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you're sensing the Holy Spirit just leading your heart today to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, man, just sing this song with all that you have. Maybe there's another way that the Lord would have you respond to the word today. Let's just respond to him as we sing this last song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.